Hello, my name is David Castleman. I'm the founder and CEO of Ecoflix, the world's first not-for-profit streaming video service, where 100% of our subscription fees go directly to fund animal welfare NGOs around the world. Welcome to the Ecoflix podcast, where I have the opportunity to talk with some of the most inspiring people in the world. Every one of them share amazing insights into how we can all make a difference in the fight to save animals and our planet. I think they're amazing and fascinating. I hope you do too. Hello everyone. I'm excited to be able to introduce you to a very special individual, Mr. Praveen Moman, the founder of the Volcanoes Safaris in Rwanda and Uganda. He's dedicated to protection and safe tourism involving the mountain gorillas and chimpanzees in, the, in and around, I should say, the amazing Rwanda Mountains. Hi, Praveen. Welcome to the Ecoflix podcast. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to be with you and with your listeners today. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, really? It's our pleasure. So I have so much to ask you about your work and your expertise related to your efforts to protect the primates and the people of West Africa. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your journey. Can you share a bit of the arc of your life, early days that leads into what ultimately developed? Gosh, um, very big questions. Let's try and compress them in a meaningful way. Um, when I was privileged to be born in Africa, uh, in Uganda specifically, uh, in Eastern Africa, um, and where I grew up was a wonderful playground. You had tremendous wildlife and wilderness spaces. And obviously, when I was born in the 50s, which now seems a very long time ago, um, the planet was less developed, there were less people, life was simpler. So it was a very idyllic moment in many ways to be born um, in Uganda. Um, at the same time, it was also a changing period for that part of the world. Uh, in the early 60s, um, the presence of the British and other colonial powers was ending in Africa. Uh, and by 1962, Uganda became independent. Um, and we continued to live there as a family. And we had an unusual status and an unusual background um, that originally my, my folks came from India, from Northern India, from the Punjab. Uh, and there were many Indians in East Africa, about 300,000 to be precise. Uh, in the early 60s, at the time of independence. And they were, in effect, brought in by the British and came in during that period uh, to help run the administration of the, of the countries of Eastern Africa, but also, if you like, to do the middle-class jobs and to run the businesses uh, and to work in the government and to provide all sorts of services. So it was a changing period, and when independence came, uh, change started happening vis-a-vis uh, Indian and uh, British families in East Africa uh, and the governments, the new governments of Africa, of Eastern Africa started saying uh, maybe you guys shouldn't be so dominant and eventually Idi Amin uh, took power in 1971 and in 1972 he rather dramatically uh, asked the Asians to leave Uganda in 90 days so my family ended up as refugees in the UK. So an idyllic uh, place to be born in terms of wilderness, landscape, wildlife, uh, nature, uh, but also a place with 
quite a lot of historical change going on. I think that's how I'd sum it up. Right. It sounds like a dramatic period for Africa as well. Now, just looking back to that period, can you describe a little bit of how wild Africa was different than it is today? Well, I think we've seen major changes in, in the world, haven't we, say, since 1950, to pick a, a figure, uh, to pick a date uh, in our lifetimes. Um, at the time, the majority of the world still lived in village areas. I think it's only in about 2003 that the world became um, urbanized with 50% of its population living in urban areas. Until that time, the majority lived in rural areas. You're referring to uh, Africa now. And sorry? You're referring to Africa now. No, I'm referring to the to the world as a whole, to the global population. That's the figure. Hmm. Uh, that Until 2003, uh, on an average basis, 50% of the people did not live in urban areas. Hmm. Uh, or less than 50% lived in urban areas. Now what we're seeing uh, is a dramatic change, especially in Africa. It's the fastest urbanizing con continent in the world. Uh, so change and development and consumption and the environmental impact of more people, of big cities, of, um, of possibly you know, 20 new cities in the next 20 years are coming up in Africa. So this is very different from the 50s. It was you know, a period where few people had uh, lots of money um, and life was very simple. You know, you had simple housing with nothing much in it. If you were, if you had a car like our family did, that was already a privilege. Uh, and very few people had that. So you could, you know, travel around the country uh, on very good roads without many people and without, you know, traffic jams or things like that. So now it's a it's a whole new world, isn't it? Everywhere. There's people everywhere in the world. They're all in a big rush. They're all consuming more. <laughs> and they're all having a big impact on the planet. Yes, that's true. And just as a perspective builder, how did it affect your view of the world, really? I mean, politics, conservation, all those things to become effectively a refugee. I mean, the new president just says, you have to go. I don't think very many people have experienced something like that. What was the effect? What was it like living through that? Well, I guess, you know, at the time, uh, various forces, as I said, were at play. You know, um, the British colonial period was ending in Africa. New governments were taking over and there were black African governments. And rightly looking at what they're rightly looking at how to provide for their people, for the majority of the population. And they took certain steps, some of which are questionable. Some of them, you know, possibly were not so great, uh, but certainly it affected people like my family in a very dramatic way. So I was sent to study two years before the expulsion in the UK in 1970, but my by 1972, all my family had to leave and arrived as refugees in the middle of the night at a small airport outside London called Stansted. So it obviously had a major impact on us. We had to start again. We had to, you know, get settled, 
yet finish our education. My parents had to start looking for jobs again. Um, so it was dramatic and different and complex. But I guess, you know, at the same time, we came from a family where both my parents were educated to different levels. My mother had two degrees. My father didn't. They'd worked all their lives. So it was relatively easy for them to find jobs, even though they were in their mid-50s in the UK. Uh, it was relatively easy for, I'm one of four children, for each of us to find our places in the educational ladder and continue to study and you know make our way in the world. So it was a major upheaval. Um, it was complex, but we were, I think, one of the luckier ones. And of course, we had this odd connection with Britain already. We had British passports. We'd grown up in, in some ways uh, with British life as a background and British culture. So fitting in was less, less of a problem than if it would have been from somebody from a completely different culture. Right. And and you were young, relatively speaking, so you were probably able to uh, build that into your worldview. It was it was not maybe crippling from the way it might have been to somebody who'd lived their life elsewhere their whole life. And then we're basically told you have to go somewhere else and start over. I think that would be much harder. No, you're right, David. I was 16. So in a way, you know, despite the upheaval, there was an element of this is exciting. This is interesting. Right. And one, this kind of faraway place with these small villages and sounds where nothing much happens to be in the bright lights of London. So there was right. some exciting new, uh, new learning and new vistas and new sense of freedom. Inevitably, for my parents' generation, who had worked all their lives and they were coming up for retirement, and uh, you know they lost all that they had done in their lives, and they had they came out with fifty pounds each. Um, that was more complex, you know, to think, well, I've got to start working again and earn a living and make sure that I provide for my family. Uh, and my father, for example, I think he never recovered from it. He always said, we, we've lost a paradise and I wish I could just go back today. Um, and when he could later, um, you know, in the 80s, about 20 years later, he went back several times. Um, but uh, my mother would not contemplate living in Africa again. So they continue to live in the UK. I think the fear from uh, someone nearing retirement of being told everything you've done is out the window, you need to start over, would be crippling for many people. I mean, literally not recoverable. Exactly. It was a major challenge. It was a major, uh, major story. As I said, you know, in the end, touch wood, we've, you know, we were lucky. We We had jobs. We had... We could survive. We were not on the street and we were able to start again and um, make a new lives for ourselves. Right. And especially you, because brilliantly, you were able to make a complete break and you went to the University of London, you went to Cambridge, and the world was really there for the calling. What kind of work did you do for a period of time before Africa finally got a hold of you again? As you say, David, I was lucky. I got to university at the University of London. Um, I read the sciences, which I don't think I was particularly good at. And one thing led to another, and I started uh, working for an employer's organization in the UK called the CBI, which looked after business and industry. And then I won a scholarship to the European Parliament. I, got, I became a Robert Schumann Scholar. And that opened my next phase of life, working for the European Union. So I worked 
in the European Parliament, I worked for a political group related to the British Conservative Party in the UK. And it was, a, again, a very, you know, in, interesting and um, kind of uplifting period because the European Union at the time in the early 80s was seen to be the thing and it seemed, seemed to, was seen to be somewhere to be and that was going places. So working in the European Parliament, I was lucky enough to do foreign affairs and I reconnected with Africa. I worked on apartheid uh, in South Africa and on aid issues and development issues. Uh, and so I saw many interesting and exciting things there and I was able to contribute in a small way to those things. And eventually I came back to London and continued working in politics and policy making for various ministers off and on for the next 20 years. You know, for those of us who've been fortunate enough to be in Africa, not like you were living there, but but to travel there sometimes once, maybe more than once, it leaves something in your heart. You can't quite ever be the same again. It's a life-changing experience. And for you, I'm assuming that it was always calling to you. You just didn't necessarily know it. Uh, and you had an occasion to go back to Africa. Was it in like 95, uh, working for the government? Tell us about how that worked out. Well, actually, I was able to connect quite much earlier because um, I left in 1970. And by 19, 1980, I was working in the European Union. And I started going back to Africa then. So I went to Sierra Leone and South Africa and then to East Africa. I was already visiting uh, Kenya and Tanzania um, and Uganda by 1982. So the connection established, re-established quite quickly. The yeah. only thing I found, I first went back to Uganda in 1982. Um, in the dozen years I'd been away, the country had collapsed. And it was at war and in a very bad state and it was being fought over. So it was a big change. But as you say, I think in retrospect, uh, it was very much in my heart, like my father. My father used to chase the blue skies of Africa uh, day and night. That's what he lived for. That's what mattered to him. And, um, you know, that's what we, we grew up doing as children, going to the national parks, appreciating this wildlife, these amazing ecosystems. And although for a while it was lost, it remained in my heart, as you said, and after the accidental reconnection through work, I continued to go go back whenever I could every few years in the 80s and 90s. And then the, the genocide in Rwanda uh, in 1994, um, even though I had not grown up directly in Rwanda, it was next door, I knew a lot about Rwanda as a child, it affected me quite a lot. And that's what in the end pulled me back to visit in 1995, and by 1997, I decided to set up Volcano Safari. So it was a long time, just, yes, at the back of my head, somehow building up as a connection. Right. And and again, Rwanda is another example that, especially people from, uh, for lack of a better word, urban first world cultures, it's inconceivable what happened there. And you, you have to be there and see the places and read about what happened. Again, it's hard to imagine how people could just go on after that. It was the loss of trust. I mean, from one day to the next, it was, they're my neighbor and the next day they're coming to kill you and you don't know why. Um, 
how did that affect you when you would go back to Rwanda, knowing what it was like before? Well, it was it was quite challenging, you know. When I started going there, you know, and as I said in '95, I went to Uganda, uh, and in 1997, set up, started setting up in 1997 this camp called Mount Gahinga on the border of Rwanda, Uganda, and the Congo. Um, things were not really very settled at the time, and it took the next couple of years when finally they did get settled. Um, and in 1998, I visited Rwanda for the first time. It was also not fully stabilized at the time. But by 2000, both Rwanda and Uganda had settled down well. Um, and they got through the worst of that conflict phase. And after that is when we were able to really start in earnest. Um, and as you say, it affects you a lot because you're trying to think of tourism. You're trying to think of you know setting up a place for people to stay. But at the time, you're also seeing refugees and people who've suffered a lot. Uh, and that does make you think about what you're doing and why. Uh, and you are conscious that, you know, it makes you ask a lot, of, a lot of questions, doesn't it? Should you be doing this? Is this appropriate or not? And eventually, I came to the conclusion it was appropriate because I thought as peace comes back, it's important that the area opens up. It's important that um, you know you set up camps in these places that have been forgotten and have had a difficult time as beacons of hope, really, as the start of something new, as the start of um, building for the future. Right. Uh, had to be tenacious. We had a lot of setbacks and challenges at the time, but eventually, you know, we came through and it worked out well. Yes, and, and I can imagine it would be more difficult perhaps for you than anyone because you had the experience of living through an incredibly tumultuous time, being exiled, and then seeing this country literally ripped in half, uh, almost with no warning. It just, uh, it had to be amazing uh, and not in a good way uh, to deal with, but but there was something inside you telling you there was healing in the future. You you had a vision at that point. Was it 97 that you really started to, you left mm -hmm. the government and decided to build something in Africa? Exactly, Dave. It was 97 that I really started in earnest to do this. And as you say, sometimes you don't really know exactly what's in you, but something drove me. I, you know, we'd been expelled from Uganda. That had been a complex part of our lives. Uganda then had had, you know, a very difficult conflict period. I hadn't lived through it, but I had seen it a few times when I had visited. And that was quite upsetting to see. And then Rwanda went down. And so when I worked in Uganda and Rwanda, and I used to visit the Congo as well to look at what was happening there, it was challenging. But I guess something, <laughs> something kept me going. And of course, my family have also lived through before the partition um, of India. You know, India and Pakistan, as you know, were created in 1947. And my mother's family was from the from Lahore, which in the end went to the Pakistani side. So maybe these background issues kind of make you, I don't know, accept these issues, accept the complexity, become more resilient and try and find a way through the challenges and, and, and work at finding solutions.
Well, I'm sure that's true, but I think in your case, there's a remarkable piece of that that kind of follows through into your current work because most people, myself included, when they think about conservation, when they think about saving the planet or animals, we don't honestly think a lot about people. In fact, people kind of are upsetting because we're the cause of so much problem for the animals. You, on the other hand, you see tourism as a way to help people and animals, which I think is a legacy, is part of your history that you have that ability to go beyond and really make something global that works. Well, thank you, David. It's kind of you to say that, and it's in a way for others to uh, to judge what we have done. But I guess, I don't know, I learned different things on, on the journey of my life. One is that although we as a family, you know, face difficulty being um, expelled from Uganda, when I started going there and working there, I did not find the people at all... Um, difficult. I did not find any animosity. On the contrary, I found warmth and openness and support. And that was particularly two of the rural areas where we were setting up our camps, which were at the time, you know, not always fully settled down. But the local people supported us. They worked with us. Uh, they were sympathetic with what we were trying to do. And I think that had a big impact on me. You know, um, okay, in any community, we can get somebody who wants to get more money from you for a piece of land or, you know, try some story. But that was kind of minor. The general welcome was very strong and they were very open and very supportive of what we did. So that made me, I think, in turn, respect them and understand where they were coming from. And then also, especially in Rwanda, I saw so many refugees, so many people who, were, who had suffered and were literally coming back from the Congo with nothing. It made me realize that if you were going to do tourism, it had to connect to the people. A, because of what they had suffered. And B, because in the end, you know, as you say, for privileged people, our focus tends to be gorillas and wildlife and wonderful landscapes. But actually, the future of wildlife, it's to survive in a place like Africa, is local people. And I said this in a TED talk some years ago, that if you want to save gorillas, focus on the people. So it might seem contradictory, but to me, it's become yeah. very logical. Right. And it's it carries through your work. And it's interesting because when you created Volcano Safaris, your mantra was to conscientiously revive tourism, which uh, is not the way most people would look at that. And so I think it is a function of your vision to see people and planet in balance and in harmony. And so by helping the animals, you help people. By helping the people, you help the animals. And I don't think that is a, a common view. I think it's a pr very prescient and ahead of, uh, I would say, the normal approach to this, including my own. So I, I, I give you credit for <laughs> having <laughs> that wisdom. Uh, perhaps you can explain a little more what you meant by conscientiously reviving tourism. 
Well, you know, it wasn't when you drove around those areas in the late 90s because of all the unsettled stuff that was going on in the area, you know, refugees, people not always at home, the end of conflict was not yet fully in sight. Um, tourism didn't seem the obvious thing to do, right? So and that's why very, very few people were doing it. You know, there were the odd uh, people who were trying to do it, but not really in any in any serious way. So I, I realized that if we were to do it, it would be a long journey. <laughs> and it certainly turned out to be a long journey and much longer than I imagined. Turned out to be tough and tougher than I imagined. But it also made me realize that you had to be patient, that while you were trying to set up a camp and eventually make it into a boutique hotel, you had to also wait for the world around you to settle. Uh, and, you know, people get people get back to a normal life um, and for the supply chain, so to speak, to open and goods to come into these areas and to train the people to work who had lost their skills during the conflict. So it was, you know, it was, as you say, as I, it was a, a, a conscious decision that you couldn't just, decide, oh, well, here's a business plan for a lodge. I'll go and build a lodge today. And then in, you know, in two or three, through two, in two or three years time, it'll be doing really well and life will be perfect. No, we had to do everything and anything. So in many cases, you know, for example, in our lodge in Rwanda, when I built that uh, starting in 2002 and opened in 2004, we were the first company in the world to build a lodge in Rwanda after the war, an international company. We had to build a four kilometer road from the main road to where the site was. We had to buy 50 pieces of land to create a site to build the lodge. We had to think of what our design would be. We had to think of how to train local people in basic skills of building because all this had been lost. So it became a much longer journey. Um, but that's a journey we've on and we've been on and it's a journey that I think has now you know, produced something worthwhile. Well, I would say more than worthwhile, and it's it's kind of life-altering for people who go. Uh, Africa is itself amazing, but the visits to see the gorillas, for example, have a quality of their own, which we'll talk about in a second. But I'm curious, the first luxury lodge you built was not until 2004, which speaks to the difficulty of your journey. You're there working before 97. You really commit in 97. It takes you till 2004 to get the first lodge up. And it said you pitched a tent in Gorilla National Park. Is that true? <laughs> well, I first pitched a tent on the Ugandan side of the gorillas, yes, in Mount Kahinga. In 1997, I pitched a tent, and that eventually became Mount Kahinga uh, Camp and Mount Kahinga Lodge. And in a way, I was following a family tradition. In 1937, one of my great uncles came from the Punjab, from a small village near Ludhiana, and he became the postmaster for King George V near the source of the Nile. And the post office, so to speak, at the time, was the tent that he had pitched in the middle of these in the middle of these lions and leopards skulking around. So I was just following a family tradition, um, and eventually that became a lodge. And then, as you say, we moved to Rwanda. And 2004 started building this this large Virunga Lodge, which has now become, you know, iconic for the big step we took at the time. 
Um, and it's, you know, seen as a very interesting special lodge. It's just won an award uh, from Travel and Leisure this last month, for example, as has Mount Gahinga. So it's pleasing to see the journey because when I was doing this 20, 25 years ago, it wasn't clear whether anybody would come, whether we'd ever have reasonable places, let alone kind of, you know, lodges that people thought were, you know, world-class that would win awards. Right. And you now have four. So just chronologically, Kahingo was the first in 97, right? Then Windy Lodge in Uganda in 99, Murunga mm -hmm. in 2004, Timbora Lodge, it was for chimpanzees in 2011. And now mm -hmm. you're working on another one in Uganda, Kibali Lodge for chimpanzees? Yes. So you're almost up to, ready to open the fifth. Exactly. So that's exactly as you say, that's the chronology, which has made us have three gorilla lodges in Uganda and Rwanda, uh, Chimp Lodge, Shambura, and now the second Chimp Lodge. So we've become in an accidental way, the great ape specialists of the world. We are the only company in the world that has uh, lodges at three gorilla sites, uh, and as of this year, at two chimp sites. And so I guess that's tied me even closer to what is called the Albertine Rift, this part of the Rift Valley, the Western Rift Valley, where the, there are these magical ecosystems and very special apes, uh, and also made us closer to the land and to the people of this area. Um, so, you know, many companies end up locating in different parts of a country or in several countries or in several ecosystems. We have remained quite loyal and quite focused to this bit of the Albertine Rift, which I think is one of the most unique areas of the world and also one of the most threatened. Um, because the Albertine Rift has these very small island habitats that remain. Uh, with the gorillas and chimps, these special, special species, and surrounded by vast amounts of humanity, which right. is increasing in number. Um, and I want to talk about that in some more detail, actually, but uh, mm -hmm. I want to point in, put a pin in time. So in 2005, Volcano Safaris joined the UN Kinshasa Declaration on Saving Great Apes. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about the importance of that? Well, you know, in 2005, we had been working for about um, eight years and already, you know, we were connected to the three gorilla sites, Kahinga, uh, Windy and Virunga. And these problems and issues that we're talking about today and which we'll come back to were already becoming very strong things in my mind. And then the UN... Uh, through the Great Apes Program, convened this conference in Kinshasa, and they asked if I would attend, uh, which I happily did. And I discovered that we were the only private sector company there, the only safari and lodge company to attend. And I was privileged to be to be there. And we became a charter signatory of the Declaration to Protect the Great Apes. Um, and sometimes, of course, you know, pieces of paper are just pieces of paper, but sometimes they're very, very important. This was the first time uh, a global organization had decided um, to convene a group of people, conservationists, uh, private sector, governments, of course, national park authorities, to discuss um, great apes, 
and also to see what actions should be taken to safeguard them. Uh, and as I said, I was privileged to be there and to be a charter signatory. And that's been a very important part of our work since then. We remain uh, a member of GRASP, of the UN Great Apes Program, and have done a number of partnerships programs with them. And actually this year, there will be the first meeting um, of the UN Great Apes uh, guys since Kinshasa in Paris. Uh, and certainly I would want to be there again to review what has been achieved and all the challenges and all the difficulties and also think about the future. Right. And just as we stand right now, looking over the horizon and looking back at the same time, you've been credited with being on the forefront of reviving tourism in both Uganda and Rwanda and particularly with creating the great ape ecotourism model. And for those who have not been, can you explain, first of all, what that's about? It's not just like going to a place, say Africa in general, and you go and you take a, a bus or a minivan or whatever, and you go out Land Rover and you see lions and then you see giraffes and you drive around for a while. And that's amazing, don't get me wrong. That's not the gorilla ecotourism model. So can you explain how that model works? Yes, I mean, we should say a step back and we should take a step back and say that the initial model of having a small number of people seeing gorillas or chimps every day was created in the 80s when gorilla tourism was set up by in the time of Diane Fossey in Rwanda and also in a park in Congo in Kawuzi Biega. Uh, the conservationists were concerned about the pressure on the animals, and they are the ones who said we must control the number of people every day that go into the forest, must have protocols for interaction, must have distances, uh, must control all this. So what we did as a company basically is support that model, uh, you know, put together by conservationists, and made sure that in our own work, we linked it to ecotourism in a wider way, so that we built a large um, near a gorilla site, near a chimp site, um, in a way that was sympathetic to the area. It was not, I hope, intrusive. Very small-scale properties of up to 10 rooms. Um, and then we set about trying to make sure that each of our lodges was connected to conservation and community activities. So that's, to me, what I regard as our ecotourism model. We didn't just build a property we didn't just build a property for the sake of building a property. We tried to see how can it connect actively to its neighborhood, to communities, to conservation. So for example, in Mount Kahinga, there are the Batwa so-called pygmies, as they used to be called, that were removed from the forest in 1991 when the park was created. And that's a, an interesting philosophical question, whether you should do that, whether when you create a national park, whether you should remove people. Um, I personally have some difficulties with that. I think you must find a way of accommodating humans in the conservation chain. Anyway, uh, the people there in Gwindi and Gahinga were removed. They didn't have um, land or compensation. They were kind of hanging around our lodge. Uh, they, had, they would be on substances and on alcohol, and they were kind of lost in the world. And we um, thought, well, at first, we thought they are a nuisance. We must shoo them away. And then eventually, we realized the issues that they were facing. And then in 2017, we built a village for them. So we have about 130 
Batwa, who live in a village near Mount Kahinga that we have we have set up. And it's been a very interesting, very challenging, very thought-provoking thing to do because suddenly you're responsible in a way for a township of human beings who who were hunter-gatherers till 1991 and who are now struggling to come into the 21st century. Um, so that's, to me, the living and active part of ecotourism, um, that if there's a problem in the area, you try and do something about it. That's one example. Another example at Chabura Gorge, where there are about 33 chimps, we have created a buffer zone between the where the chimps live in this beautiful gorge and where the human population is in order to create a buffer zone. Um, and in Windy, we've created a hospitality training school at a place called Windy Bar. Uh, at Virunga, we, are, we have a community center where people you know, are trained in handicrafts, which we want to expand. So in each place, we see what value can we add to local people or conservation. And now, um, in the last year, we've taken that further. It's 25 years since Volcano Safaris has existed. And so in October last year, I hosted a retreat at Mount Gahinga Lodge, our first lodge. And we hosted 25 conservationists from different organizations to come and spend a few days with us, with national park authorities, to discuss what is the future of the great apes in the Albertine Rift in the next 25 years. So again, this is what it's become really our journey that yes, the basic, the, the fulcrum of it, the focal point of it is the property that we have built, but then we have our conservation and community projects. And now it's what else to do around them because there are not many people who are long-term stakeholders in this area. And people like the Dying Fossey Grilla Fund, Grilla Doctors, uh, Gladys Kalema from Uganda, the Jane Goodall Fund, uh, the Budongo Chimp Fund. There's a number of very specialist, very, very committed conservation organizations, the governments and the protected area authorities and a few private sector companies, especially us. So we're trying to make sure that all of us stakeholders work together to look ahead at how we keep an eye on the challenges of the next 25 years. Right, and it's been fairly well publicized that the entire towns, villages are, are being renewed and restored by the revenue from the tourism. Not just the money to go see the gorillas, but the artwork that's created for them and the entire industry that's built around the gorilla population. But I want to focus just for a second on the gorillas, because that's, to be entirely candid, that's where my heart lies, hence my backdrop. I, I like the idea very much that you're helping people, but honestly, I'm, <laughs> way more, I'm way more concerned about animals than people. So um, a lot of people have been moved, for example, by uh, seeing Coco, the gorilla, who could speak human sign language. And it's amazing and impressive. And what uh, Penny Patterson did there was quite groundbreaking. But you know this, and having been there uh, a couple times, I know that the guides and guards that protect the gorillas, that literally live in the forest nearby, knowing where they're setting up their bomas or camps, the gorillas communicate in their own language with the people who get to know them well. 
they literally can speak to the gorillas. Now they couldn't write books. They don't have every word in a sentence that they speak like people do. But at the same time, it's remarkable to see them speaking to the gorillas and there's complete comprehension back and forth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh my gosh. I can't say much about that. I don't have the capacity to talk to gorillas, David. Maybe in my next life I will do. Um, but it illustrates a wider point, doesn't it? That, yes, on the one hand, gorillas and chimps are kind of wild animals, so to speak, in the forest. And on the other hand, it's worth remembering that they share so much with human beings. Uh, about 98% of our DNA um, is the same DNA they have. And they're highly intelligent, they're highly organized, uh, very thoughtful um, animals. Um, and I may not be able to speak, speak to them in any language, but when you look at a gorilla, you're very, very conscious you're speaking to, to a cousin, to somebody who is of your wider family, and you feel the sense of communication, you feel the eye contact, you feel the curiosity. Uh, and I think that is a very important takeaway. So to, to like you, I, you know, gorillas are certainly important to me. It's not that I, I have a huge uh, regard for these wild animals that are disappearing so quickly and are so threatened. Uh, and it's very important that all of us do something to look after them, partly because they are our relations and partly because we do have ways of communicating with them. Um, but I can't comment on how, how, to learn, how to learn gorilla language and speak with them. Maybe that, that's something I have to do next. Well, I don't know that... Uh, it was a question of learning, although the guides literally tell the tourists as they go up a few of the words in, you know, <clears throat> and they they know what certain grunts and sounds mean. Uh, and it was fascinating. I saw it actually operate. I, I'll never forget. I was with the group, the small groups that go up, and uh, you've mentioned that, but I want to talk a little more about the size of the groups. But the gorilla family had moved they had gone to some other location and we were following them and there was a bamboo thicket between us and so there was an opening like a doorway and my group that followed the guards and they'd gone through and I was waiting I was the last in the group and there was a space of maybe 15 20 feet before I got to the opening I was looking around or daydreaming I don't know what I was doing but just as I reached this opening in the bamboo an adolescent silverback stepped into the opening mm -hmm. so he completely blocked the opening and i was five feet from him about to walk into that opening and he looked at me and i looked at him i don't know what he was thinking but i was pretty panicked because i didn't know what the heck to do and the guide who was waiting by the side of this bamboo opening said to him in gorilla what they told us ahead of time which means back off it was something like, <clears throat> and mm -hmm. literally the silverback turned, looked at him, looked at me, and then backed away. I walked through the clearing, and then he and the guide started playing after I left. They were obviously well acquainted. It was pretty much mind-blowing. Uh, the communication there was absolutely crystal clear. It was obvious what had happened. And these guys, having spent time with them, obviously have learned some yeah. of the communication. It's I sure I'm sure you've seen it many times. 
Indeed, and I think that is a huge, it's an amazing thing, isn't it, when you see it, that these grunts and murmurings that the rangers make um, have very, very clear, um, you know, impact on the gorillas. They understand them and they've learned, the humans have learned from them and they, they use them back to them to reassure them, uh, to tell them to be calm, to, to be safe. And that's, uh, it's a major skill. And again, just shows the big bond between us uh, and gorillas and chimps. Yes. And it's now recognized that tourism probably saved mountain gorillas from extinction quite some time ago. Um, and you've talked about in other contexts, how the tourism protects the great apes, but talk a little bit about their numbers and how you see things going. Well, you know, the gorillas, of course, the so-called discovery of them happened in 1902, uh, when a German administrator in um, in Rwanda went to the Virunga volcanoes and on the Rwanda-Congo border, uh, he saw a gorilla and he he shot the gorilla and that became the official uh, acknowledgement that gorillas existed and Count von Beringer was the first person to to do this. Having said that, two thousand years ago, Ptolemy in Alexandria had heard about these half men, half ape creatures. Uh, when he had sent runners to them. Um, so then, particularly in the 50s and 60s, you had um, various conservationists starting to work with them. Um, in 19, Sorry, let me take a step back. In the 1920s, a very important American... Sorry, in the 1920s, a very important step was taken for gorilla conservation. Uh, Carl Ackley, who was from the... Natural History Museum in New York, as you know, um, came and worked in the Virungas. And he lived in, in the Virungas, saw these wonderful gorillas and thought how wonderful it is and they needed to be protected. And he persuaded Prince Albert of the Belgians to create the gorilla sanctuary in 1925. So almost 100 years ago to the day. Um, and that became, became the beginning of conservation of the gorillas in the Virunga volcanoes. Uh, and then actually, it's interesting how the next story is also heavily taken over by Americans in a sense. You know, George Schaller came um, from the Wildlife Conservation Society in the 50s, also spent time with the gorillas, observing them. And then Diane Fossey came in the 60s. Um, so these were important conservation steps, understanding gorillas, understanding how they lived. And Diane Fossey, of course, her research work became really the beginnings of a major work that continues today. She set up in 1967, as you know, the Karisoke Center, high up in the Virunga Volcanoes. Um, and um, for the 50th anniversary in 2017, we built at Virunga Lodge a map room dedicated to her work and to the work of explorers and conservationists. Um, and last year, the Diane Fossey Griller Fund, uh, based in Atlanta, with its conservation partners and with the support of Ellen DeGeneres and other uh, benefactors have set up a new Karisoke Center, which I hope your visitors and others will, um, which I hope your listeners and other visitors will support and visit. It's a, it's a fantastic facility. And that uh, conservation center has now been going on for 50 years, which is very impressive. So in the 60s, when Fossey was, was working there, 
it is thought there were about 300 mountain gorillas left in the world. So very tiny number. There were no specific statistics, but that's how, um, how tiny the number was and how precarious they were, how precarious their population was. And there was also a feeling that potentially poaching would reduce their number further. And Fossey wrote, wrote in her book, uh, Gorillas in the Mist, that in the same century that they had been discovered in 1902, it's probably the same century they would disappear from the earth. Now, luckily for us, they haven't disappeared. And in fact, this year, we have about just under 1,100 mountain gorillas that live in Rwanda, Uganda, and the DRC. So it's a great success story, but still a very precarious one. Um, you know, it's increased fourfold, so that's wonderful. But it's such a tiny gene pool, um, anything could cause it to disappear. So my lessons from this are clear. Diane Fossey was reluctant to have tourism. She said tourism would have a negative impact on, on the future of gorillas because of disease and other things. I think disease and other issues certainly have to be taken into account. But in my experience, which is now you know 25 years worth of doing great ape um, ecotourism, if you do not have tourism, I think the future of the gorillas is even more precarious. By making them part of the economic supply chain, by giving them an economic value, by showing to local people they have a worth in their lives, I think they can be protected for the future. At the same time, you must have very sensitive and very controlled tourism. So the numbers of guests going up every day must be limited. As you know, it's eight people per day that go up to see a mountain gorilla group for one hour. That's what the conservationists have ruled should be done. And I hope very much we'll stick to that. Again, the rule is that you must, must be 10 meters from them. This is the post-COVID rule, that you should really wear a mask. If you're sick, you should not go into the mountains. So these sort of disease control protocols are essential. Um, so that's my that's my overall view that if you want gorillas to survive, um, sensitive and controlled ecotourism is the key. Um, and if you have no tourism, I think you will find that the gorillas will be under greater threat. So it's a very very difficult balance. No tourism, and they may not be gorillas because nobody will value them. Too much tourism, and you could kill them through stress and disease. And you have this overarching problem of limited geographic space. Can you talk a little bit about the uniqueness of the environment they require? Yes, this is very, as you say, unique space because it's Afro-Montane forest. It's high-level forest. So it's not you know, like the classical jungles of tropical Africa. It's, it's kind of thinner, finer, wispier forest. It's, I guess, more akin to the New England forests. Um, although the vegetation and species are very different. And the four mountain gorilla parks, the two in Uganda, uh, the one in Congo and Rwanda, together are 700 square kilometers. If you put that in context, Yellowstone is 70,000 square kilometers and uh, Serengeti is 30,000 square kilometers. So this is tiny, tiny, tiny habitat and all surrounded by people and farming. So it's very, very important that we look after this habitat, make sure that there's no intrusion by humans or as minimal as possible. 
uh, and that we make sure the habitat survives because that's, of course, crucial to the survival of the gorillas. And the mountain gorilla only survives in this sort of Afro-Montane habitat. They don't survive elsewhere. So attempts to take them away from this part of Africa to other, other forests or to even zoos abroad does not work. So we have to be very careful if these forests, if these high-level Afro-Montane forests don't exist, then I'm not sure the mountain gorillas will exist. Now, it's interesting because the environment itself abuts farmland. The mountains come down to farmland, and you have this wall, a rock wall, a low rock wall that's not keeping anything in or out that divides the mountain, if you will, from the planting and gardening of the people. And there is this overlap, which in any Western society, people would be just getting their guns, and if anybody stepped foot on their plants, they just shoot them. And yet, there is this remarkable symbiosis that has developed. Can you talk a little bit about how, and of course, why that is so important to the mountain gorilla survival? Well, I think local people accept that, you know, these gorillas are part of the space. They're part of their ecosystem and their environment. Um, and of but course, why? they're not but why do they accept them? We, we accept that, for example, deer in many states in the United States are part of the environment, but people randomly, willingly, constantly shoot them. And if they're on their property, they consider them, you know, vermin. And I, you know, I can't even tell you how badly I react to that, but it would be the same with gorillas if, it wasn't for your tourism model. So how do the people all of a sudden decide, well, we'll put up with these great apes coming and trampling and eating some of our crops? Well, obviously local people are not terribly happy if the local if the local gorillas, so to speak, come and eat their produce. You know, it's not something they're keen on or want to encourage. But I guess they accept them as another being in the ecosystem. Um, so worst case scenario, of course, you get animal-human conflict like you do anywhere in the world. Um, but generally, the local people are quite patient and shoo them away. Uh, they don't take out their guns and kill them. Um, they don't you know, make their lives difficult. But this is where we have to be very careful. If you know the population pressure keeps increasing uh, and more and more gorillas cannot find enough food inside the national park, then they will be out, uh, out of the park looking for food. Uh, that's why the habitat preservation is very important. I guess, I don't know, local people, maybe they're more, more sympathetic, more, more inclusive than those of us who live in big cities and who want to control our environment uh, to a big extent. Uh, local people find it, you know, part of their daily life. Well, they do, but I think that there is a very important financial connection. People people tie money to value uh, on with so many topics. And in, it's no exception that with the model that's been created, the flow of tourism dollars is not withheld from the people who are living closest to the gorillas. Many business models, if you take 
Prada or any major jewelry line or purses. They sell in stores all over the world, but the people locally don't get any of that money. And it's not the normal environment. You've created an environment where the people are directly benefiting locally from those tourist dollars. And so they see the gorillas as money in their pocket. And so they are willing to put up with them. I think it's brilliant and it needs to be replicated with so many species in so many locations, but it hasn't happened yet. So great credit to you. Well, so it's not only to me, it's the whole, you know, the model created by the conservationists and the national park people, and then people like us who build lodges. But you're absolutely right. There is a clear link between tourists coming to see mountain grillers and money in the pocket of local people. So 5% of revenue from the griller permits in Uganda and 10% in Rwanda goes directly to projects connected to the daily lives of people around the national parks. So they see that, they get that, you know, the provision of water, the provision of, of a school, of a, a road or a clinic will come from that. And then they see as well that the lodges that people like Volcano Safaris and others have put up bring money for them, bring them education, bring them opportunity. You know, in 2004, when we opened Virunga Lodge, um, there were one or two locally owned lodges, but there were no international lodges. And when I see the communities around Virunga, they have moved on so much. You know, they they aspire to so much. We have one of our former workers who's training to be a doctor. We have others who are trying to be small business people. Uh, we have women who have set up groups to support each other. So I think the, if you like, the economic model that tourism brings is not, it's it's money it brings through the national parks, which the governments have been very good about, and also uh, through these through these lodges in the area, but more widely, it's the skill sharing and the training. I mean, over the years, of course, we have we have skilled up many many local people, and the majority, of course, continue to work with us. But others go and work for other lodges or set up other businesses. So it's it's helped open up a whole economy from a very difficult uh, conflict zone twenty five years ago. And it's a different kind of economy than, for example, the hunting environments all across Africa where they license hunting. And it brings money to the, the, the local people, but the difference is they're literally killing their inheritance. As these hunters go out and decimate species, the tourism is eventually quickly going to die. This model not only protects the animals, it protects the people, it's quite brilliant. And all congratulations to everyone involved. But let me let me bring you full circle. So you yes. lived through all these crises, India, Africa, etc., especially Rwanda, and you've seen it all happen. And now you're trying to work in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where there's still quite difficult human endeavor. Uh, ongoing. There's conflict. How do you see this coming finally around to maybe bring peace to the DRC and move all the way full circle? Uh, sorry, David, I should correct that. We are not currently looking at working in the, in the DRC. Ah. So what I will say is this on the DRC is as follows. Maybe you want to, do you want to rephrase the question now? Or no, no, you... no, it's fine. I make so, mistakes all the time. 
<laughs> Indeed. No, no, it's, it's a complex story. So let me kind of build in the question in my reply. So um, as for the DRC, David, of course, one part of the Virunga volcanoes is in the DRC. Uh, and for many years, we were keen to operate there. But in the end, we have not taken the step well, to operate. That's what I was referring to, that you've looked at it. We are, we've certainly looked at it. In the end, we decided not to operate there. Uh, but we should pay tribute uh, to a man who has committed, you know, the last 20 years of his life working there. That's Emmanuel de Merod, who uh, grew up in Kenya and who's Anglo-Belgian. And he has been working hard uh, to be to revive that park and build up the infrastructure. And I do hope that Parc National de Virunga, as it's called, um, will settle down with the support of the work that Emmanuel and his colleagues do and the Congolese government uh, does, and also that the regional aspect will will stabilize uh, because Park National de Virunga is one of the most important parks in Africa uh, for its species and ecosystem. Um, and it'd be wonderful if one day we could work there, yes. But for the moment, we don't have plans to work there. I understand. But the idea that it is such a microcosm of the larger arc that you've lived through, uh, I find inescapable. And I hope you're around to see that come to peace and protect the gorillas there as well. Praveen, I agree. It's a very, very important part of our ecosystem. And we all wish that the Congolese side of um, you know, the Virunga volcanoes functions normally and together with the rest of us. Yes, it's a microcosm really for the whole world. So, exactly. Praveen, it's such a pleasure to have talked to you. Thank you for your time today. And I hope I hope everything is swimming for gorillas and people in Rwanda and Uganda and soon the DRC. Thank you so much, David. Thank you so much to Ecoflix as well for taking an interest in me. A number of your colleagues have been long-term friends and supporters and people I admire, especially Ian Redmond. And one should pay tribute to all the people who have worked with gorillas over the years. Um, you know, Diane Fossey, obviously, we talked about, and George Schaller, and all the different other conservation organizations that exist. Uh, and Ian Redmond remains one of the most important ambassadors for the world of gorillas. And long may his work continue. Yes, Ian is our head of conservation. And as you know, he was with Diane Fossey and literally found her after she and Digit were killed. So. Yes, he's been involved for many, many years, and uh, I consider him a, a friend, and I'm so pleased that he's part of our organization. Absolutely, sir. Well, thank you again, and um, it's really important work that you're doing, disseminating this work, so we appreciate all your support and help. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please share it with your family and friends who want to join with us to truly make a difference. Remember, think big, start small, but act now. Thank you.